Hello and welcome back to Global Lab, the podcast from the Bartlett Centre for Advanced Spatial Analysis at UCL. Hello again listeners, uh, I'm your host Martin Zoltz-Horstrick and this is the first themed episode of Global Lab, City of, City terror. of, terror. of terror. Later in the show, uh, Peter Bodan will be joining us and explaining the mathematics of terror. Geographer James Neal will reveal what used to terrify horror supremo H.P. Lovecraft. He did, he did have, bizarrely, a uh, very strong revol- a revulsion when he came to contact with seafood and fish, so all the kind of aquatic um, entities in his work. That's why he's all squiddy. And yeah, and, f- and the, deep, the deep ones are kind of fish, frog hybrid. But before we get to that, we are going to hear from PhD student Panos Mavros and his research into terror in the city. Well, not quite terror in the city, as we'll find out. My name is uh, Panos Mavros. I'm a third-year PhD student at the Centre for Advanced Spatial Analysis. Um, my research is about how people respond to places, uh, in particular cities, and how this response, um, emotional response, cognitive response, is then turned into behavior. In other words, what is behind the urban flows, what we observe in people walking around the street and going from A to B, uh, from work to home, what actually drives their behavior, what's behind the structure of the, and the patterns of their movement, and I'm particularly working, working with pedestrians. So uh, we're interested in this episode about terror in the city and, and uh, you're in a sense able to detect people's terror as they navigate the mean streets of London, is that, is that right? It's a bit exaggerated, <laughs> but it's, uh, it, it's in a way one facet of uh, um, the experience we have as pedestrians. We are exposed, and that's the big difference, um, let's say, with car drivers, even with cyclists to an extent. We're exposed as pedestrians to the environment whether that's the, the natural elements, if it's windy, if it's cold, if it's chilly, if it's raining, uh, the architecture around us, if there are shop fronts and the facades that we're walking by, if the, um, the buildings are interesting, are they textured. So all of these things do influence how we feel at a certain place, and that's what we're trying to tap into with our work. And, and so how are you tapping into that? Uh, right now we're experimenting with a technology called um, EG. It's... Uh, it's electrocephalography. Mm-hmm. It's a technology, a technique rather, that's been used over the last 50, 60 years to measure brain activity. Okay. Um, it's the same across species, so it can work with all kinds of animals. Um, and the idea is that we measure basically the electrical activity of the brain. And by locating where the acti- activity emanates from, which parts of the brain are more engaged in a certain process, yeah. during a certain task, for example, we can infer whether it's cognitive load, working memory, attention, or other processes like navigation. We can also infer, uh, to a good extent, the emotional state of the user. So wait, wait, so what does this device that you use to detect look like? Oh, uh, it looks uh, like um, a, a head cup or a okay. beanie. Uh, a beanie. Just <laughs> a beanie with uh, cables coming out of it. Uh, it's electrodes, and we connect these electrodes, which is just cables that conduct the electricity okay. and we get good quality uh, cables, that's the only difference. So um, they're connected, So that's detecting the electrical activity on your, on your scalp? Yes, so by applying a, a conductive surface on the scalp we can mm-hmm. pick up, in our case, electrodes with conductive gel to make the bridge between the skin and the electrode. You can pick up the electrical activity that's underlying. Our bodies produce electrical activity anyway. That's from we know that from Galvani back in uh, 18th century. So the guy who electrocuted frogs legs. Yes, got them to exactly. Dance. Yeah. 
So we respond to electricity, muscles are responding to electrical signals to activate and um, contract or expand. Uh, so the brain also, the neurons communicate with tiny, faint electrical signals, thousand times smaller than what we see, we, we, what that our brain sends to the muscles. So the point is that it's really faint and it's really hard to pick up and we, we're not conscious of it, of course, but this is what leads to consciousness. Um, by amplifying that and digitizing the signal, we can have that in uh, in our computer, and then we can analyze it and do spatial analysis and see which part of the brain is producing more activity. Why? Classify that, and there is a lot of literature on how the electrical activity of the brain differs when you're involved in a working memory task, a navigation task. There are similarities and differences, of course, when you're looking at images, when you're uh, trying to remember numbers or remember words when you're more engaged, less engaged. So, so the brain is a pretty hefty organ, and it's it's definitely a three-dimensional bit of, yes. bit of mush. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of stuff that's going on, presumably right in the centre, that you can't get to. What, what what does just measuring the surface actually tell you? What what can you find out from that? So with EG, we can EG as a technique. You can is is fairly generic. So what we refer what we're talking about is scalp EG. Mm -hmm. That means that we have the electrodes on the scalp of uh, the surface of the head. Yeah. Uh, so with scalp EG, you see more or less, I think, um, about activity that emanates from the last two, two point five centimeters from the the scalp. So okay. The rest you cannot really pick that up. There are, for example, you can see, if, uh, let's say, the parietal cortex where we know, uh, which is below, above and below the ears. That's more or less where parietal cortex resides. You can in, in working memory tasks and navigation tasks, we have seen a correlation with, uh, let's say, complexity of the task and uh, um, activity in certain brain waves like theta. Then, oh, okay. if you are doing, um, if you're watching images, then by looking on the activity over the occipital cortex, which is the back of the head, mm -hmm. then you will see responses that have to do with the, um, the image right. you're seeing. Even the rate of the flicker, for example, you can pick interesting signals. Uh, by looking on the frontal cortices where you have cognition, executive function, you can also see differ differential activation. This is where um, uh, emotion recognition also works by looking on uh, the differential activation of the, the frontal cortices, left and right. Mm -hmm. So what sort of cognitive processes, what sort of em or, or emotions even are you looking for when you're, you're taking, when you're seeing pedestrians move through the city and navigating? Um, what what we're looking at right now is in one of the experiments I'm involved in, and that's with the Behavioral Neuroscience Department of UCL. We're looking at the neural correlates of navigating. Mm -hmm. So um, that's um, a research that Hugo Spears, who leads that project, uh, has um, has been doing for a number of years. And the, the interest there is to see what are the exact neural correlates while you're trying to resolve essentially a spatial reader like your place A, you have to find the shortest path to place B. What happens in the brain? Which parts are more involved when you're trying to do that processing? We anticipate that, for example, maybe the, the path distance to that goal it would, will be represented somehow. The complexity do you have to take many turns or few turns? That mm. kind of amounts to the complexity of the network or the Euclidean distance. So from prior research neuroscientists have done, we, we know that um, a structure deep in the brain that we cannot look with EG, but we can look with fMRI, mm. functional magnetic resonance imaging, 
we know that the hippocampus um, responds dif different in a different way towards having calculated Euclidean distance or a path distance to a goal. And the hippocampus is, is a particular yeah. structure in the brain that is, yes, it, is it dedicated it's to, to navigation? Or? It's related with uh, memory um, and and navigation. So it has to do. So if your hippocampus isn't working because of a lesion, then you have a very hard time forming episodic memories anyway. Um, so there is a debate how episodic memory and navigation form are related, but mm. that's um, an obscure debate for at least for this context. Um, but anyway, it's a, it's an area that's really important for all of our memory, including our representation of space. And what is interesting with the, that structure and in terms of navigation is that um, we knew it was important for many years, but a good example is a recent uh, publication, 2014, where they found that people who have a larger posterior hippocampus, so it's more dense, let's say, with connection, mm. uh, they have a, an easier time or they are better learning an environment faster making associations and new inferences about that environment. And inferences, when you travel, let's say, a U path, mm. inferring that you can take a shortcut I see, through yeah. an environment you haven't been. Mm. So people who have a more active hippocampus or bigger, um, in, a, as in a crude way to put it, then they have an easier time. They're better at this. And we know that some people are better at navigating anyway. Mm. So... So there's a particular group that you've been working with, actually, that one might assume have a very different set of navigation techniques. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yes. So at the same time, in, in another part of my research is looking on the emotional responses to places. So right. exactly what, apart from the... If navigation has a cognitive component, having to remember how I can get from A to B, what is the best way, how to avoid dodgy streets or boring streets or yeah. uh, muddy streets or whatever. Mm. So that's more kind of the cognitive load. You have to figure out a problem. Yeah, at sure. the same time, you have preferences. You prefer to go from this street, not the other. Some places make you feel better or calm mm. down. So there is this element as well. I'm trying to tap on that. Yeah. Uh, because I think it's, it is part of how we move around. So it's not always, we're not always trying to solve a riddle. Sometimes yes. we know how to get there when trying to find the most the less taxing or the most pleasant way mm. and we're doing this project with visually impaired people and we're working with the guidebooks for the blind association and what we're trying to tap into is what does it mean what's the experience of someone who has a, a certain vision impairment and we're working with different people so there's a variation there what is the experience of walking down the street are there can we find any correlations let's say with stress points um, excitement or more relaxing places that are less demanding where people can uh, metaphorically kind of take a breath and carry on walking and it's less stressful uh, so trying to understand these things and see how they form patterns if they're the same between individuals with different degrees of impairment and people who have uh, good vision as well so trying to understand what it means and visualize that and communicate that because another part of it is being able to communicate someone's experience because we can describe that my experience was hard or stressful or good, but it's very different seeing that on a map and being able to communicate to someone else that, you know, this is the places where I actually um, was more stressed or this is where we were through a park and it was less stressful and actually could uh, relax a little bit and carry on my walk. Um, 
and by communicating this maybe we can do something about design and improve you know, focus where interventions are needed and take the terror out of the city, as you put it. Well, good news there from Panos Mavros. Uh, and now we take a slightly darker turn as we venture into the terrifying cityscapes of renowned horror author H.P. Lovecraft. And we are guided today on our journey by historical and literary geographer James Neal. Hello, I am a geographer uh, in the geography department at UCL and I work on two things, I guess, literature, usually sort of popular culture stuff, and uh, alcohol, the history of drinking places. And so today we're going to be talking about um, the, the sort of literary side of things, specifically Lovecraft, which is something that you've written about, published mm-hmm. on and so on. Um, uh, for people who haven't come across him, who is H.P. Lovecraft? Well, he's, um, he's an important figure in uh, 20th century horror writing, but he's also a very controversial one because uh, he had particularly unpleasant views, which I guess we'll get to in a moment. But I suppose... Um, most people will have come across, uh, well, most people of certain age will have come across the Cthulhu phenomenon on the internet. Now, is that how you pronounce it? Well, I have probably just summoned him by incorrectly <laughs> pronouncing his name. I've always been a Cthulhu type Cthulhu. person. There is a there is yeah. a Cthulhu, and I mean, you know, in Lovecraft's own work, there are various spellings of it, various uh, attempts at pronouncing it because it's meant to be an ancient name that's been handed down through. Whatever, and he never gets to speak. As far as I remember, he doesn't say anything himself, so he doesn't get to correct anyone. So, who is this Cthulhu guy? He's a kind of ginormous squid-like human dragon hybrid entity from beyond time and space, basically an enormous alien being, one of a a set of alien beings who came to Earth in the deep past, uh, and for some still not entirely explained reason, is trapped at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, And every now and again, his it's all about seismic stuff. Volcanic activity wakes him up a bit, and sometimes mm. the island even raises from the, the ocean, and then the dreams of people are plagued with horrible premonitions of the end, essentially. Oh, so this is some this is a, a, a giant dragon-like squid creature that can destroy the whole world, essentially. Yeah, him and his mates, because he's not oh, on his own. There are quite a few others who all are conveniently kind of buried away, usually also forgotten about by everyone except you know people living on the edge of civilization and a few crazy people as well. And this is the, the, the uh, Cthulhu mythos, mythos, is that his yes. is Yeah. So this sort of pantheon of, of, um, of uh, not very pleasant yes. gods and entities. That With ridiculous names that are quite hard to pronounce, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Okay. That's, but that's not the most terrifying aspect of them, hopefully. <laughs> no. no, although, you know, sometimes when you're doing a, a kind of podcast, it suddenly becomes quite <laughs> terrifying that you don't know how to pronounce them. Okay, just, so just to back up a bit, this is Lovecraft. So he, he's this writer of, of, um, of sort of world-ending dread. Uh, mm-hmm. these the, the sort of buried places that we don't want to go to because they'll, they'll overturn the whole world um, uh, where, does the, where does geography come into that? Good question uh, I mean it's not all about seismic activity in the Pacific um, I think I was always interested in Lovecraft as a, a geographer because he se- it seemed to me that he was on the one hand really interested in particular kinds of places mm-hmm. and he's got this kind of fascination for the bits of New England that he spent most of his life in, basically, uh, and the cities in New England and New York to a lesser extent. Um, so there's, he's really quite an interesting writer about place, although he has his problems. Um, but he's also quite um, interested in writing about very kind of pulpy places like distant islands that have been raised up out of the Pacific. And he kind of he's part of that great sort of pulp imagination of, the, I guess, the exotic and the primitive, which is again pretty ropey. A lot of the ways people thought about it, but. It's kind of interesting to me why he thought about that at that particular time. But he's also, I think, really interesting in a more kind of metaphorical way. He's talking about the beyond. He's talking about gates that connect 
incredibly ancient places and very distant stars together. He's interested really in a kind of cosmic sense of space and a, a very sort of cosmic sense of time, so an enormous scales of time and space. And that's what he found really frightening and what I think modern people find really frightening. So what, what, can you remind me, when, when was he writing, when was his heyday? Um, I guess his most successful work is published in the sort of early 20s, really. So is that, I mean, uh, maybe this is a coincidence, but that seems to coincide with uh, a big boom, boom in... in the physics of space, the Einstein's relativity, and yeah, was that a coincidence, or was he influenced by that? He, I think he liked. I mean, he was very keen on science. He was completely uninterested in the occult, bizarrely, oh, okay. for a man who made all this stuff up. Um, yeah. He he had a very kind of rational, scientific, mechanistic way of thinking about the world, uh, and he kept up with astronomy in particular. He probably there's a lot of discussion about whether he really understood, you know, Einsteinian stuff. Um, he was interested in some of those things, mm. but he wasn't, I think, able to really do very much with it. There's a series of stories he wrote towards the end of his life, which are some of his more successful ones about um, the way maths approaches a kind of sorcery when it starts talking about four four dimensions and more. Okay. So um, one of his... This is, uh, there's a lot of stuff in his books about geometry as well, isn't there? Yeah. One of his luckless heroes is a maths student who mm. is too good at maths and basically ends up invoking something from beyond simply by sketching something out in the wrong kind of way in his attic. So there's sort of complex equations that seem sort of arcane to us, are literally arcane to him, they're conjuring up um, yeah, yeah. scary things from another dimension. That's right, the it's dimension. conjuring the usual limits on reality that we think are there, but uh, but they're, they're really, he thinks, things that we perceive to be there. So is he sort of, I mean, uh, is that sort of like a luditism, that he's afraid that human, humanity is overreaching itself with all this fancy, fancy maths, or...? Yeah, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't one to say, oh, don't worry, we'll think of something. He was kind of thinking <laughs> about how in the long run, you know, in the long run the planets are cinder or a cool, cooling, sort of dying mm. thing. He was, yeah, he was, um, yeah, I guess he was, he was a bit of a sourpuss, really, a bit <laughs> in that sort of respect. Um, that would be the headline, no, HP <laughs> was a sourpuss. Yeah, he had no kind of religious convictions, he had no kind of sense of, um, I mean towards the end of his life he started to get a bit more kind of <laughs> upbeat and uh, he also became much less right wing and a bit more kind of optimistic about, mm. um, maybe he became a bit more optimistic about things like the New Deal, although he had his kind of doubts about that too, mm. but he didn't really see much hope in uh, in his stories anyway, there's not much kind of positive stuff going mm. on, He mm. was, but on the other hand he, uh, to his friends, and he had a huge um, network of friends that he wrote to, wrote kind of letters all the time, he would be a classic fanboy now he'd have about 15 blogs and you know yeah. he um he was very, very sort of avuncular yeah that's right <laughs> but he was very avuncular with them and he right. was quite chirpy and he appeared to have a slightly peculiar sense of humor but i think when he sat down and made himself think seriously about the human race he didn't really like it very much i don't think so you've hinted that there's this sort of that he, he said he's sort of shady or dodgy and i think that, let's get that tackle ahead on yes. but what What's the problem that we have in the modern day with Lovecraft? Uh, he's pretty racist. Right. I mean, when I say pretty racist, he's racist. Right, okay. <laughs> I mean, racist it's, enough. Yeah, it's difficult. People have been arguing about this for a long time, and there's a, 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 the current version of this argument on the internet is basically a number of his biographers saying, well, you know, lots of people were racist at that time in, in that right. place in the States, um, therefore it's okay. But really... I don't know. I mean, firstly, not everyone was, and there were lots of people who found his opinions quite dodgy then. Yeah. So you can always say, you know, we're not just projecting our ideas back. There were people then saying, hang on. Mm. Um, but it's also, I think, that uh, his his views have become quite famous. You know, he's mm. he's reprinted, constantly reprinted. His works are 
And does that come through very strongly in his, his stories? Yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. And particularly his uh, work on cities and Ooh, okay. uh, New York in particular. Because he went to New York to live after basically spending most of his life in Providence, Rhode Island, which he loved. He loved Providence because he was very old-fashioned. He did like to look back. It wasn't so much that he was a Luddite, but he loved to imagine himself as an 18th century gentleman back before the Civil War. Well, the, sorry, the war with, um, uh, with England before okay. it became uh, set, you know, a new country. Um, and he wanted to be, basically be uh, an Englishman who happened to still be living in Providence. Mm. And he loved the past, and he loved that kind of Anglophile way of thinking about things. When he came to New York, he hated it because of what he saw as its kind of immigrant character. Mm. But clearly, New York, for several decades, had been one of the greatest immigrant cities yeah. in the world, and still is to some extent, and he, he just didn't like it. So yeah. what, what had become a sort of small part of his work and his ideas became quite kind of focused. There's a classic story called The Horror at Red Hook, which is in Brooklyn, and I think now it's quite interesting to think what's happened to Brooklyn in the last decade was or so. Wa- was he worrying about hipsters drinking No, but there is a bar, bar, there's a Lovecraft bar now <laughs> in Brooklyn, <laughs> okay. where you can drink these weirdly named cocktails that are you know, bright green or whatever, and I just think, uh, is it a really racist bar as well? You know, they kind of worked out that there are those sorts of connections with the place. But it's, it's a set mm. in a sort of uh, immigrant quarter of Red Hook, and the protagonist is a, a detective, an Irish-American detective. Some immigrants are okay, apparently. And he, he delves into this kind of mysterious goings-on and finds not only that it's recent immigrants who are summoning up some kind of occult entity, but also mm. the debased Dutch uh, families that came to New York in the... Don't know when when it was New Amsterdam. Okay, so it's kind of about how Europe gets debased in America, but also about how other immigrant groups from the Middle East, for him largely, and then later China he used to say some pretty horrible things about China and Japan, mm. how they would ruin these old cities of the, uh, the East Coast. So the horror at Red Hook is just yeah, it reeks of mm. kind of revulsion basically. So for them, the horror in the cities was people that didn't look. Exactly like him. Yeah, yeah. It's okay. it's classic stuff about smell, about um, these people jostling you, about how you can't hear English spoken. You know, it's kind yeah. of it's all the classic things that are also kind of other fun and interesting things about cities. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. fact there's a lot going on and there's different people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's all those arguments in urban sociology <laughs> and geography about how you learn to be a good person by kind of learning to forgive rude people on the tube because yeah. you're never going to see them again probably yeah. so you can't track them down and have a nice chat with them and have a meaningful exchange you've got to kind of grow a kind of a sort of hard shell of um, of being tough and putting you know mm. just ignoring it all or you've got to kind of learn to think oh well you know it's what people are like Lovecraft never did that and he ended up leaving New York and going back to Providence and going back to live with uh, one of his aunts I think it was so yeah he, he didn't like all those things he made a conscious choice to go back and avoid them how disappointing to find one of the greatest horror imaginations of the 20th century was just afraid of people a bit different from himself and, and seafood and finally for this episode of Global Lab Thomas Oleron Evans has caught up with soon to be Dr Peter Bedan to find out all about the mathematics of terror so my background is in mathematics and I try to apply a variety of mathematical techniques to a number of problems related to security. So this may involve uh, various forms of civil unrest, uh, rioting, insurgencies or perhaps most relevant for this episode, terrorism. I like to work with data that contains information on where 
and when events associated with a particular type of uh, conflict occur. So ideally this data would be at the point level, so would contain information on exactly where uh, an event occurred and when an event occurred, uh, and might also include more information such as a description of what happened or who might have been responsible. Okay, so you've got space and you've got time and perhaps some other details as well. Um, and uh, let's just remind ourselves what, what kind of events, what kind of data we're talking about here. So this might be things like uh, IED explosions. Uh, improvised explosive devices. That's, that's right, yeah. Uh, uh, or things like terrorist attacks or, or uh, even things like riot events. Okay, so when you have this data, uh, what is it that you do with it? Well, if you have a series of these types of events, you might first be interested in where they're occurring. So you might choose to plot them on a map. And then you can use this map to detect hotspots of activity, which is where there are uh, more events happening nearby to each other uh, in, in space. And th this might immediately give you some indication uh, as to the geographic extent of the conflict, which can be quite useful from a policy perspective. You might also look at the times at which events occur by plotting a time series of, say, the number of events that are occurring on, say, a daily or a weekly time scale. So a time series, you just mean a graph of, of what's happening over time? That, that's right, yeah, plotting, charting the frequency of events. And then you can use this to uh, look at trends in the data, whether there are increases or decreases in the occurrence of these events over time. But what's quite interesting from... Uh, for my research is detecting whether or not there's any space-time interaction between between the events uh, and, and what this means is that the events are happening closer in both space and in time than would be expected by just looking at the spatial or the temporal uh, aspects of the data itself uh, and what this typically means is that there is some form of interdependency between these events uh, and so it may imply that uh, it could be the same group of individuals who are laying these devices, or it may be that there's some other factor causing a sudden surge in insurgent violence in a particular area. Okay, uh, and what do you do to detect this, this space-time interaction, as, as you called it before? So one way is to use uh, what's known as a NOx test, which was originally developed in epidemiology, to detect whether or not a particular disease was contagious or not. What this does is it compares the uh, number of pairs of events that occur near to each other in space and time. Uh, and it compares th this number against, against the number of pairs that occur near to each other in space and time against a hypothetical scenario. Uh, in this hypothetical scenario, we would have the same spatial distribution of events as in our empirical data and the same temporal distribution of events as in our empirical data. But we uh, randomly permute the space-time association between these events. So this means that we randomise the times at which events occur so that each event is associated with, another, uh, with a time from another event in the data set. Uh, and comparing this hypothetical scenario to our empirical data and counting the number of pairs of events that occur near to each other in both cases, we can then get some indication as to whether uh, the events are interdependent. Okay, so you've got all your information about where and when, for example, the IED explosions occur, 
uh, and then you shuffle up the times of these but you keep this, the, the places the same and then you see what patterns do you see in the real data that are not in the randomised data that's what that's right yeah and if there are any consistent patterns then it, it gives you some indication that there might be some space time interaction between the events well if we have a decent understanding of these underlying processes then we can start to build uh, more mechanistic models uh, and what, what this means is that we uh, specify some uh, assumption as to how uh, these events are being generated and then we encode that within a mathematical or computational model uh, and then this allows us to well first evaluate whether or not our ideas about how these events are being generated provides a plausible output uh, and if, if that is the case then it may be that we can use these types of models for uh, the prediction of where events might occur in the future. Okay, uh, so are you saying you could predict where and when an event could occur and what kind of event, or is it something else? It's more about extrapolating the space-time patterns that we've observed in the past uh, and then using that to identify uh, the onset of space-time patterns and then that perhaps, perhaps might dictate uh, policy interventions. Okay, so you could say maybe it might be more likely there will be attacks in a certain place at a certain time. That, that's right. There's, there will always be an associated degree of uncertainty. Uh, so these mechanistic models you talked about, could you maybe describe a bit more what these models look like? So one type of model you might propose is called an agent-based model. Um, this, this type of model is essentially a computer simulation in which you model uh, parts of your uh, system of interest, so this might be individuals, as an autonomous entity that interact, that behaves and interacts according to a predefined set of rules. So you're modelling everyone in the system, maybe all the rioters, all the police, that sort of thing? That's right, yeah, and so, so we can encode our understanding of, uh, of these processes into this computer simulation so that uh, it represents what we think or how we think these processes are occurring. So how would a model of a, of a riot, for example, like that work then, an agent-based model of a riot? Well, a very simple agent-based model of rioting might model uh, potential rioters that are in a particular location. And it might consider the transition that turns bystanders into rioters themselves. So to do this, for each agent in your system, you might assign to it a uh, particular propensity or predisposition to riot, which basically encodes how, uh, how many rioters nearby are required to be rioting before they, they themselves will engage in the disorder as well. So you can think of this as kind of like a contagious spreading process. So if this value of uh, riot propensity across these different individuals varies in different ways, then we can explore how, the, how different types of rioting might emerge from this simple model. And then we might uh, increase the complexity of this model by incorporating uh, maybe different agents such as the police and modelling the response of different rioters to the presence of police. Or we might also in incorporate uh, the environment in which these riots are occurring in more detail, for example, by using geographical information systems. Okay, uh, so 
maybe now if we look to the future, um, in this area of modelling uh, riots, events or, or explosions, terrorist attacks, what do you think are the future directions of the, of the field? Well, I think there are a number of different directions, largely because the, the this this type of work, the data-driven modelling of um, civil violence, of, of terrorist events, uh, is relatively a new field. Uh, so I think a lot more could be done in incorporating uh, different sources of uh, space-time data into the models to try and get a, a, a much broader sense of the context in which these events are occurring. So this involves um, new ways to incorporate data into our models as well as improving the range of models that are available. I think a lot could also be done in comparing uh, the models that may be calibrated on one example of civil unrest or terrorism uh, and comparing it to a different part, to, to a different outbreak of rioting or terrorist attacks in a different part of the world. And this might give us a sense of whether or not our models are uh, picking out general features of the system or whether it's m more specific to the scenarios that we've investigated. Thanks to all of our guests this episode. You just heard Peter Burdan, before that James Neal, and before that Panos Mavros. Uh, Thomas Olwan Evans was also on interview detail, and I have been your host, Martin Zoltz-Halsbury. Uh, I will be back again soon with a brand new episode, so please do tune in. I hope you've enjoyed your tour of terror. Happy Halloween!